This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. This is our first meeting of the Zoomer Squad since the election, and I think the results confirm what we've been talking about beforehand, that the Zoomer demographic was basically ignored or just mollified with the usual platitudes and a bit of cash. You know, let's give Granny a few bucks, the 500 we promised two years ago should do it, that from the Liberals. Well, It wasn't a winning strategy for any party. Canadians elected a parliament almost identical to the one that was dissolved last month. And here's a situation that I found especially disturbing, and it was brought to my attention by a caller on Free For All Friday. So her mother usually votes in her nursing home. Now, that wasn't happening this time because of COVID, but The family wasn't told or informed, so they weren't able to take their mother to the poll, and she couldn't vote. Have a listen. My mother, who's in long-term care in Toronto, her whole building did not get a chance to vote. Really? Really. What happened? Normally, they have somebody in the building doing it, but we were not even informed that it wasn't going to happen in order that we could have taken her to vote. Well, let's begin with that. I wonder how many of our elders were disenfranchised, basically. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Hi, guys. Bill, how was your holiday? Good to have you back. Good to be back. It was uh, restful, and uh, I'm ready to uh, take on the world again. Okay, well, that's good. Uh, So, um, David, what is your reaction to what we heard from a caller named Carol? Well, on the one hand, I'm not surprised. On the other hand, I'm equally outraged with the caller. And one of the things that hasn't featured, you're quite right, in the postmortems is even if they had been informed, what did the absence of all those polling stations in previous elections that were in nursing homes or seniors' residences, we had Elections Canada ran, uh, I don't remember the exact statistic, but I think it was less, significantly less than half as many polling places as before. So the impact of that on seniors, the further distances to travel, um, uncertainty as to where you would go compared to where you were used to going, uh, that had to compound uh, the, all of the problems. And I think that accounts for one of the reasons we had the lowest turnout ever. Um, I agree, Peter. I mean, uh, I, I was saying before the election that I thought the parties were counting on the fact that perhaps older people who are vulnerable and a little more cautious wouldn't wouldn't go out to vote because of COVID. But this uh, this kind of crystallizes it. Yeah, and and you know, it, it's a good point, Levy, because their their platforms none of the platforms really addressed. Um, you know the the meaningful issues for seniors. Uh, they they sort of skirted around it or or threw out a few, you know, a, f- a few uh, gifts, but n- nothing substantial. And and perhaps that's the reason they they knew there was going to be a lower turnout, so they they didn't address that population. And um, you know, for you, students um, were complaining because there were no polls at uh, universities this year. But you know, students are are you know they're mobile. They can uh, they don't need someone else to take them to vote. You know, it didn't really affect the student vote, I don't think. But certainly, if you don't have a poll in your building, um, and you don't have anyone to bring you on the day of the election to the vote, 
then um, certainly that that sort of smacks of uh, voter suppression. And and you know these people had it, they can't get out of their bed. Like how how are they going to get out to a, a, a voting uh, decision? So. So it's certainly very concerning, and we'll we'll have to um, look at that again if if similar circumstances exist in the next election. Well, yeah, and and Bill, I mean, even people who are more mobile, I mean, it just seems like it was uh, an afterthought because, as we heard from Carol, a lot of them, I'm sure, had family members who would have taken them to a, a poll if they if they knew. Like nobody even thought of this. Well, uh, you're absolutely right, and uh, and we at CARP are surprised, in fact, shocked that this happened. We had conversations with people from Elections Canada as early as last December when they were planning. We were assured by them that they were making uh, appropriate plans so that seniors can vote, and in fact had offered the help of our chapters and our 325,000 volunteers across the country to help make sure that polling places were available and that seniors were able to vote. And uh, they ended up telling us they didn't need us, that they had everything quite under control. So, uh, and I was personally in those conversations and was just uh, frankly horrified when I heard uh, last Monday that people were having uh, uh, this uh, difficulty. You have to wonder, and this is just a supposition, whether or not the elections canned officials were trying very hard and somehow uh, politically they were hamstrung and being able to carry out the plans that they certainly intended to do when I started talking to them at Christmas time last year. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, we heard that despite the fact that they were aware and allegedly planning for over a year, at the end, things things were done pretty hastily, David. And, and you know, I, I'm not sure that there was malice of forethought, but this is just it, like being ignored and, um, you know, just ignored. I think they were. I think they were complacent, and I said I don't think it was malice, but I think that once again we see a major institution failing to execute and with no accountability. I think they said it's COVID. The expect the bar is already low. Um, we don't need to stretch uh, in any remarkable way uh, to achieve uh, what we're after, and um, they took it for granted. Uh, Peter, you know, way back at the beginning of this, in the first wave, um, I wrote a column in the magazine because my feeling was that because COVID uh, is more dangerous for older people, and there's, uh, at least in the first wave, there was no question of that, I felt that uh, older people were being kind of infantilized worse uh, than uh, they, we usually are, and that... Um, you know, that this whole thing might see, I don't know, um, that the demographic would end up in an even kind of worse place. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, that column was prophetic, Libby, because, um, prophetic. I like that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, um, you know, again, I'll go back to the, the platforms basically ignored, um, the key senior issues. And um, and they didn't make that much of an effort to get uh, seniors out to vote. So so certainly, you know, on the you know on the surface, it certainly seems that you know either ignoring or infantilizing or just sort of taking for granted that they're there and uh, they'll get out by themselves. And like it, it's just sort of a it, it, it's part of this building. Um, you know, disregard for seniors that you uh, you so cogently noted in your call. Well, and and it's interesting about you know in 2015 when Justin Trudeau was kind of a, a bright, optimistic young thing, he he made a lot of headway with younger voters. But you know, like everyone else, they're kind of disillusioned with him. So uh, if it was a calculation, uh, it didn't work very well, uh, Bill. No, it didn't work very well at all. In fact, I had the uh, opportunity during the last two weeks when I was out of the office to talk with a lot of seniors and a lot of younger people about their attitude toward the election and, and toward uh, the prime minister. And I, I had heard uh, from 
from David through his research about the uh, animosity that they were feeling toward the prime minister, I did not uh, really realize how strong it was uh, going to be. People were really upset, uh, not only about the election being called, uh, but then about their inability to vote. Even those people who were mobile told us that the lineups were so long, the polling uh, the polling at the stations was was so slow that uh, older people who who wanted to get out of there uh, get out of the house and go and vote as they normally do were not able to stand in line for the hours they had to and one of the big questions was why with all this planning didn't they allow uh, mail in and uh, our online voting this year other provinces uh, are doing that other areas are are doing it would have been such an easy solution. It's it's as if those in power were trying to keep the numbers down because they know the numbers, gen, uh, lower votes generally support the party in power. Okay, let's take a call from April in Mississauga. Hello, April. Hello, Libby. Go ahead. Well, I'm calling because my son is a resident of long-term care, and he had a voting card to vote in within the building at polling station 603. And when I, Monday, when I went looking for the polling station, the staff in the long-term care said to me, well, we don't have a polling station. And I said, well, that's not what the card's telling me. And they said, well, Elections Canada told us they can't put anybody in here because they don't have anybody that's double vaccinated that could come in and be the polling person. And I just looked at them. It was 11 o'clock in the morning. And I said, well, how am I going to get him to uh, to vote? And they said, well, you can go down south down to Sheridan Mall and take him in there. And I said, and how am I supposed to take him in there? I said, he has to go on a van and I can't take him. So, so what happened was after about an hour and a half of me showing my displeasure with everything, the the staff went and got the the Schlegel Village van and took it and got it out and we got my son on the van and we went all the way down Sheridan Mall, which is quite a little ways from here, and we took him in the door. Well, then then it started. Well, you're not supposed to be here. You're supposed to be at 603. And I said, well, I told them the story. There isn't any 603 now. So then we had to get a transfer paper filled out. This was after being sent from A to B to C to D. And he said, I would have to vouch for him because he didn't have any photo ID and he wasn't in the right spot. But of course, there wasn't any spot. So anyway, the girl, in, they, they finally got the two papers filled out and then they sent us over to a polling booth and he voted. This was now 3.30 and we'd started at 2 o'clock and I had started at 11 a.m. to try and figure out how I could get him to vote. Apparently, there were mail-in ballots available at some point, but I, who come in here every day, knew nothing about it. So I don't know whether that would have worked, but the girl that I was talking to that had direct one-on-one with Elections Canada, when they told her that they didn't have anybody that was double vaccinated that could take this position for the day in the polling booth here in the village, she said to them, listen, I would have been only too happy to be the person that was in the building, because I work here, if you wanted to see me for training. And I said to her, well, they need to know that for the future. Just train somebody that's staff in the building, and then you don't have to worry about anybody trying to get out or trying to get in or whatever. April, you know, first of all, kudos to you for going to all that trouble and giving your son the opportunity to vote, Um, you know, but... uh, it's 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 I have no words. It's it's nuts. And um, I'm sure that a lot of people who wanted to have their vote were disenfranchised. And oh, yeah. it's completely the unacceptable. Here, they couldn't know unless they were with it enough and they were helped by somebody to know about a, a mail in ballot because I'm in here every day and I didn't know. Well, the mail in ballots were they were long gone because the deadline for a mail in ballot was uh, basically a week before the election. Um, So, April, thank you very much for your call. Could I just mention one other thing that is really important Um, regarding anybody wanting to go out now when they have to show their vaccination? If I want to take my son to a restaurant, 
he has to show them his vaccination that he's been fully vaccinated and we can we can i guess get that offline but what we don't have is a photo id and neither does anybody else in this building unless you drive or you have a photo uh, ohip card you have no photo id you don't have a photo ohip card no he does not and this is what they're saying here at the village they're saying we don't have an answer at this time as for those who do not have photo ID or government-issued identification with a name and a date of birth matching what's on the proof of vaccination, we don't have an answer at this time. Uh, I, You know what? If, if we talk to the right people, I'll try to get it. I, I, if, why don't you have photo ID? That doesn't make sense. I don't know. Okay. His, his, his green, and he doesn't have the old white and red one. He's got a green one. It has no photo ID, so they... So then there you are in the restaurant and you don't have any photo ID. So, Okay. Uh, another thing to look into. Thank you. Uh, a litany of problems. So older people, people with uh, disabilities. I mean, it's... <laughs> wow. <laughs> what can I say about this? David, I, I, I want to turn to something else. And that is, uh, you know... In the midst of all this, the parties were so focused on social media, it didn't do them any good. The NDP, so Jagmeet Singh is a huge social media star. He was doing meetups or something on TikTok. He would not give us here 10 minutes to talk to our older audience. And look where it got him. And they spent $25 million on their campaign, up from $10 million the last time, for basically the same result. And all that social media exposure, well, it doesn't turn into votes, does it? It doesn't turn into votes because I don't think it works in a limited 36-day period. Where we've seen this successful is when you take, and by the way, I'm basing this on both both the Democrats uh, under Obama and the Republicans to a degree with Trump, is when you have a multi-year runoff where you said, this is the group of voters I'm going after. I'm going to start to plant the seeds now. I'm going to get them engaged. I'm going to get them involved. I'm going to get them to volunteer. I'm going to reach out to them, drip, drip, drip all the way. And you've got very sophisticated analytics. But if you try to do this when they drop the writ five weeks later, um, it, it, it's not effective. And it's been proven. It's proven itself to be not effective because after all that spending, none of them moved the needle. The liberal vote went down. The NDP vote, I think, went down slightly, certainly didn't skyrocket. And, um, you know, they tried it and they, they basically maybe kind of held serve but didn't really grow. And I think that shows that you can't really do this short term, uh, you know, with one message. They were also handicapped by the fact that there was no one theme or one message that you could galvanize everybody around and create outrage around this one topic where you get a meme or you get a hashtag that takes off and everybody's saying it. This was a kind of a bland, not, I won't say bland, but kind of all over the place election. So how could you create that urgency uh, through social media? And uh, we saw that you can't. Uh, David, just just before we, we see what the other guys think, so do you think that there will be a rethink where they might return to uh, looking at this demographic that generally votes overwhelmingly compared to others and and that uh, still uses uh, traditional media. Well, I said, well, we're certainly going to try to make them think of the demographic. <laughs> that's that's for, for darn sure. We're going to be very aggressive on that. But I think that they will I think in an election campaign, unless you've, there's almost a seamless, spillover from your social media into the election. I don't think you can just abruptly come up with a slogan and plaster it all over TikTok and expect uh, the world to change. So maybe they will go back to uh, traditional media where it is a little easier to maybe package one thought and get it out there to a lot of people. Uh, Bill, do you think that things will come back as a result? I, I, I really think they do. I think they'll have to. I think the the, the younger people who are promoting social media, using social media themselves, are misreading the facts about our demographic. And that is that, yes, 
because of uh, COVID, uh, uh, seniors, uh, older Canadians are more comfortable uh, using uh, technology, but they're still using very traditional technology and only in direct communication. Uh, there's an assumption somehow that because seniors are now more comfortable technology, that they're on Facebook, they're on TikTok, they're using uh, a Twitter, and they're, they're not. Their basic information is still uh, is still hard copy uh, and and regular uh, regular media. So they have to do what we have to do at CARP, and that is with the very younger part of our demographic, the the, the newly older Canadians, the the, the uh, pre retirement seniors. They're getting more and more used to using uh, social social media. Uh, but the older members, the people who vote, still the majority of our older Canadians are still using traditional media and they better go back to them if they want to get their message across to those people who actually vote in elections. Peter, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, um, the the leaders use uh, social media for brand building and for reaching out to um, audiences that aren't watching the news or, you know, um, looking at the literature that comes to doors or, you know, watching the debates or anything so so in a way you know we, I, I i can see why they go they do use social media to to reach those groups but like i i'm uh i'm very skeptical of anything i read on twitter or and i, I don't read anything on tiktok um you know do they um, read on tiktok <laughs> <laughs> i don't think so well they and, look at pictures <laughs> and i i like so so like for, for a serious uh, representation of of party issues, I, I I think you know the the eleven o'clock news or the the newspapers or the radio or you know traditional media do a much better job in uh, filtering the nonsense and and getting down to the nub of it, and, and so they'll continue reaching out on social media, but I, but I think um, the the traditional media it does a much better job, and um, you know I, I I suppose there'll be a refocus on that in the next uh, election. Okay, let's uh, take a couple of calls. We've got Mario in Toronto. Hello, Mario. Hello, Thanks for taking my call. Um, I my, my view on this whole election was that it was a very weak um, election in the, in the sense that I just felt all the leaders um, were very, very weak. O'Toole was very, very disappointing to a lot of conservative uh, voters. Um, I don't think he was strong enough to put the message out. Um, and I just believe that, you know, these leaders, based on the performance, they really need to start packing their bags and, and give the job to someone who can stand up and, and do better in the next, uh, next election. Okay, Mario, there's uh, people who agree with you for sure. I mean, uh, the knives are out for Aaron O'Toole. As you heard in Bob's News, uh, just uh, less than an hour ago, Annamie Paul from the Green Party resigned after being treated in the most appalling way by her own party. Um, there are people who are starting to say, because Jagmeet Singh had the aura of the most popular leader, but he didn't get much done while spending an extra $15 million. He got one extra seat. Uh, so there are people calling for his head too. And, and then with the prime minister, the same deal. He didn't get a majority. He's back where he started from after $620 million bucks. So yes, there, there are people who are saying they all should go. And and, and by the way, as a program note, we have our uh, crack strategy panel tomorrow and tonight at 11 on the Zoomer television on our sister station, Vision TV. I have an election, a post-election special, which is very interesting. So please tune into that as well. Let's hear from Ruth in Toronto. Hello, Ruth. Good afternoon, Libby. Thank you for your uh, program. And the two last gentlemen, I'm one of them. I don't have a computer. I still like to talk on a telephone. Um, I have a comment and a question. I was one of the ones that knew that you could vote by owning the party. I called 311. They gave me all three people who were voting, who were casting, um, I could cast my vote for. 
And so I told them I would like all three of the numbers, not telling them who I was actually going to vote for. And I did get a list by a young woman to take me there and uh, got in, got out. She took me in. She took me home. And two years ago, or the last time we voted, I took wheel trans. I know everybody doesn't have it, but I'm one of those that need it, and otherwise I wouldn't take up a seat from somebody else. The last qu- the question is also I wanted to know is who pays for this, the provincial, the municipal, the federal? Who pays for our voting? Like, uh, the federal. It's a federal oh, election. It federal. So there were a lot of places. We pay for it. Ruth, the bottom yeah, line we is we pay for it. Yeah, I know. I know. Eventually, we pay for it, but I didn't know who actually did pay for it. And, I, and Elections Canada is is an independent body, right? It's right. supposedly not political. We pay for it. I think that's a whole. Uh, that's that's the bottom line. Ruth, thanks so much for no, your call. Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, we have all these, I mean, you know, I'm sure that all the parties are doing the postmortems, including who they appeal to and why they didn't get very far. Uh, so I, I guess, uh, David, you know, what do you think it is incumbent on the demographic to do to, uh, you know, say, hey, we're still here, people? We, um, we're pretty angry. Uh, at CARP, and I think among our demographic, and I think what we have to do is um, force the politicians to stop with the cliches and the pieties. We have a good example coming up this week in National Seniors Day, and I'm sure all the party leaders are going to say the right things. And this is the insidious trap, Libby. Everybody loves seniors. Everybody knows what to say. Everybody knows the right verbiage. And we can expect that verbiage flowing freely on uh, October the 1st, but they didn't get honest about the real problems. They didn't confront the real issues. None of them did. And so I think at CARP, we're going to be trying our hardest to uh, force them to recognize what's really going on and be very uh, agnostic about all the parties and say, you want to show me, show me the goods now, finally, enough with the nice words. You know, uh, I think that kind of sums it all up, and that's a good note to end on. And uh, October the 1st is Friday, so I guess the next time we talk will be after National Seniors Day, and we'll see if there was a little more meat to it uh, than what you're describing, David. It will from Carp's point of view, I can tell you. Okay, well, uh, until then, thank you so much, Peter Mugridge, Bill Van Gorder, and David Kravitz. We'll right, talk you, next bye, week. Bye, everyone. Okay, bye, Thanks, everyone. Well, it is time for a quick break. And when we come back, the two Michaels, it was so good to see them coming home. Uh, we've been hearing some details on how that happened, some believable, some not. And also, what is next for them? It's a pretty long road ahead of them when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It was an emotional homecoming after more than a thousand days in captivity. We were collectively relieved and happy, very happy to see the two Michaels finally come home. Details on how that happened are starting to come out. Some, like a few assertions from the Canadian ambassador to the U.S., are frankly hard to believe. She said there was no talk of freeing our hostages in the American negotiations with China to free Meng Wanzhou, and that the Chinese made an 11th hour decision on their own to release them. The whole thing, I have to say, had the air of a Cold War era prisoner swap. I'm not the first person to say that. And of course, it's just the beginning of the healing for Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. We'll get to that too. Uh, numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And let's bring in Dr. Jeremy Paltiel, professor of politics, 
Government and Foreign Policies of Asia at Carleton University, and Dr. Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor of International Affairs at Carleton and an expert on national security, as well as, well, we will be joined by psychologists in a bit. Um, hello, Jeremy hello. Paltiel and Stephanie Carvin. Thank you good so morning, much. Good morning, or afternoon, I should say. Yes, good <laughs> afternoon. So, uh, <laughs> <blur> now. <laughs> let's begin with uh, Stephanie Carvin. Uh, what do you make of the explanation that uh, none of this was discussed and the Chinese just decided, hey, uh, let's, at the last minute, let's send them home? And there just happened to be a challenger there to, to, to pick them up. It, to me, it is a little bit of international gaslighting, I think. Um, it is, it, it's just patently false, um, because, you know, um, I, I believe our former ambassador to China, Guy Saint Jacques, pointed out that, you know, they would have had to have been taken from prison, given clothes, uh, given showers, put on a plane, um, you know, I mean, like, they didn't just pick these guys out of jail and, and put them on planes. I mean, this clearly had been orchestrated for a, a number of hours, if not days. So, I mean, this is clearly something that was planned in time um, to coincide with the release of, of Meng Wanzhou. So, I mean, that's just very clear. Now, I mean, the thing that the question I have is whether or not Beijing realized that when it basically released the Michaels at the exact same time as Meng, that they were effectively confirming the narrative that this was, in fact, a hostage-taking, or to use a more polite term, arbitrary detention of the two Michaels. Uh, it's not clear to me whether or not they intended to send that signal. And some of the, uh, you know, signs that we've seen from the uh, Chinese state-owned media that, you know, no, this is, you know, this was completely separate, this wasn't hostage-taking, um, seems to suggest to me that maybe they are trying to backpedal a little. Uh, Jeremy Paltiel, what, what do you think of uh, that explanation? Um, I, I, I agree that uh, this might have been planned in advance uh, by both sides. Um, but um, I actually disagree with the narrative that uh, Stephanie has been laying forward, that the Chinese didn't expect this kind of reaction or that they even cared. <laughs> I have to um, agree with you there. That they... Because the Chinese position from the very start on the arrest of Meng Wanzhou was that this was a state decision by the Canadians to support the Americans. And they reiterated that as recently as a month ago. Um, and so, and, and they always believed, regardless of what um, Mr. Trudeau might say um, and about how we talk about the rule of law, they always believed that the state had discretion. So as far as they're concerned, um, they don't think that they they are um, uh, you know putting the lie to their own position. They they already believe that the, the, yes we do we may say we do things our way and they do things their way. But as far as they're concerned, the state has discretion. End of story. And anything else is is BS as far as the Chinese are concerned. And Jeremy, do you believe that? Uh, the negotiations to free Meng went on, and and the Chinese just on their own decided to release the two Michaels. No, that's, but that, that's look. There are several things here involved. We need to bear in mind. First of all, Mr. Kerry went to Beijing. He spoke with Xi Jinping or his, his people. Um, Mr. Xi made it clear to Kerry that if the United States wants to play ball on climate change, it um, it has to get. Mung released. That may have galvanized uh, things more at the DOJ. We also know that our ambassador to China, in his own so-called private capacity, had gone to Washington to try and kickstart um, DPA negotiations. So that we know that there's, and we know from various sources that the DPA had been in the works for some time. The question is when. The other thing, the further thing from the Chinese point of view, not just that they want Meng out, I think, you know, the Beijing Olympics are coming up. So they wanted to get this out of the way. When they got a DPA, which actually, which amount, which had no admission of guilt, everybody walked away feeling okay that they had uh, gotten the best part of their bargain. The other aspect of it is that the, the DOJ case, regardless of the agreed statement of facts, 
was looking shakier in the Canadian court at the last court hearing. It's not, it's difficult, you know, it's possible that that, uh, Judge Holmes might have ruled against the the extradition, even though that's relatively rare. Uh, So all those things played in, in terms of bringing all kinds of items, which were already on the table um, a few weeks ago, but bringing them all to get together in 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 one package, and I suppose the re-election of Justin Trudeau might have played a small part, in the sense that the China Chinese know as well as everybody else know that the the Liberals are a little bit um, less anti-China than the Conservatives are, uh, and that's really- Stephanie Carvin. Could it have been something as simple as, okay, the, the court says that Ms. Meng can go, but, uh, and we'll be happy to release her plane as soon as the two Michaels are in the air. Could it have been something as, uh, like that? No, it couldn't uh, have been that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that's, if you're asking her about the Chinese system, it doesn't work that way in China, period. No, no, no. I mean, I meant our system. Where we would have said, we'll be happy to let her plane go from Vancouver when the two guys are on the plane. Uh, Stephanie? I really don't see how that would be possible. I mean, there are different pieces of domestic legislation that can stop people from flying for various national security reasons. I'm not sure you could plausibly make the case like you know, a hostage-taking case like this, that, that that would that that would work. So, I mean, and to be honest, um, like I said, I was genuinely shocked when I, I fully expected Meng to return to China before the Canadians were released. I honestly thought it was going to take three to six months because there is, you know, a Chinese legal system and Michael Kovrig had not actually finished his legal proceedings, right? I mean, and it's interesting because like one of the pieces that came out, I believe, in the, in the Global Times, the Chinese Global Times, which is a one of the state-owned media media organizations, they actually had to kind of provide an explanation as to why they actually let Michael Covert go. And I think in the end, it came down to to something about health reasons or something like this. But normally what you would see in these cases is, um, you know, in the case of Michael Spavor, you know, he was um, tried, convicted, sentenced, and was serving a sentence in which part of that sentence was to be extradited from China once once the sentence was over. Michael Kovrig hadn't gone through that. And so I honestly mm-hmm. expected that he would have to go through something like that before he was even released. I mean, and so, you know, this is, I guess this is why I was so caught off guard when it happened on Friday night, because they kind of looked the fig leaf flip a little bit. And I mean, whether or not, um, I, I'm not trying to imply that, that China was you know, um, I, I, I agree with, like, uh, you know, Professor Peltiel that, you know, the I don't think China's afraid to let it be known that they were engaging in this. Um, but it's just interesting to see the way they've kind of been trying to cover their tracks in the last little weeks about this. And it's like issuing the statement about why uh, Michael Kohlberg was actually released when he was. Uh, we've got to take a break. Everybody hold on, please. We'll be back with more from Dr. Jeremy Paltiel, Dr. Stephanie Carvin, and your calls and comments when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about the return of the two Michaels, about how that happened, and also what comes next. I am with Dr. Jeremy Paltiel and Dr. Stephanie Carvin, and I suppose the next question is, uh, will Canada now finally make a decision on whether to allow Huawei into our 5G networks, and uh, is Canada now freer to say no? Uh, Who are you asking? Uh, Jeremy, go ahead. Well, I mean, I, I think you know, I'm not. I'm not so certain. I think it, it, the, the the situation of the two Michaels may have played into the decision. I think, uh, but the point is that the ground has shifted since then. Um, I think Stephanie is closer to the national security community than I am, but um, but I think that the likelihood will probably be a no especially after the British shifted their position and our Canadian position was broadly similar to that of the British one. Um, 
Stephanie? Yeah, I I agree with that. I mean, it is, it's going to be interesting and I I wouldn't be surprised to see a decision as soon as this week, or at least there should be, um, if only because we should provide our telecom, you know, some, some guidelines here. Um, it is interesting. There was actually a division within the national security community. You had, um, certain agencies like the CFE, the communication security establishment, um, who felt that, you know, Huawei, the risks of Huawei could actually be risk managed. And then you had, uh, organizations like Can- uh, Canadian Security Intelligence Service or CSIS, which thought, no, no, they had like a big X beside the Huawei name. Um, and so there was a bit of a dispute there. What we have seen happen is that the companies themselves are kind of seeing where the wind's blowing and they have, you know, Bell, Telus, Rogers, they've all been kind of walking away um, from Huawei. But um, yeah, I agree also with, with uh, what Professor Peltiel said in the sense that um, the, uh, the fact that once Britain changed its position, it became harder and harder for Canada to really kind of be the, to say, you know, to give Huawei the the total thumbs up. So I think, um, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me to see a decision um, maybe in the next month or so. Hmm. And, uh, you know, yesterday, Mark Garneau, the foreign affairs minister, articulated a new policy to China, basically saying, well, we we have to deal with them, but we're going to call them out if necessary. Uh, How do you see that playing out, uh, Dr. Paltiel? The three C's policy actually was articulated over um, over a year, around a year ago already, when um, the former foreign minister, Mr. Champagne, um, then he declared that they're not going forward with the free trade thing. So the three C's has generally been a kind of uh, general Western um, position, cooperate on some issues, challenge, compete on other issues and challenge on uh, other uh, sometimes sometimes the co- co- cooperate becomes collaborate sometimes the uh, the challenge becomes confront um but the the three c's is becoming the uh the policy du jour with regard to china the, the united states ex- uh, uses almost exactly the same language uh, and Dr. Carvin, what, if any, role did this new alliance among the United States, Britain and Australia have, the AUKUS, where they made a deal for nuclear submarines and it was obviously to confront China? Yeah, so, I mean, all of this whole thing that we're talking about here, how we engage with China going further, um, it's all taking place in this really interesting context where you have Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States forming this nuclear sub-alliance. Um, definitely within the five eyes, that is our main intelligence partners, the, those three are, are kind of moving on in, in their relationships and in terms of, of how they want to engage in the Indo-Pacific. We're also seeing the EU develop an Indo-Pacific strategy, maybe a little bit less uh, militants, but also, um, but at least they have a strategy. Canada, I worry about in terms of, we, we just don't, you know, we talked about the three C's, but those are some pretty vague, um, ideas. And I'm, I'm sure Professor Rundell would agree with me on this. We don't really have an Indo-Pacific strategy. We don't really have a China strategy. Um, you know, we go between very, you know, uh, wanting to have a free trade agreement, you know, up to like four years ago. And then now we're like even talking about, you know, completely disrupting our supply chains and moving away from China entirely, um, as was, you know, one of the positions of political parties. I think what we need to do is really define what is it that we want out of our relationship with China, with our relationship with other Asia-Pacific countries. Canada hasn't had an actual foreign policy in more than 15 years, which is ridiculous for a G7 country. So let's identify what we, how we actually want to engage um, in the Asia Pacific, and then what do we need to actually achieve those interests? And then who do we want to work with in order to achieve that? And that, you know, should be the subject of conversation. There's, there's many different uh, ideas you can have there, but it, it boggles my mind that we haven't done this. And my only hope um, with the release of the two Michaels uh, is that maybe that's going to free up some uh, space to kind of really carve out and think about it. What is it that we want? What tools do we need? And, and what should we be focusing on? Okay, I, let's. I, I'm not. I'm not so sure. I, I agree that we should have. We should have a China strategy, and uh, we should have had one for a long time. And we should be thinking about what our relationship with China means for our other relationships. Um, I 
see that Canada, I mean, whether we may be a little bit more um, forthright in some of our in some of our statements, but um, I don't see Canada playing a significant role in the Western Pacific. Uh, it hasn't in the past. It won't in the future because we are, we are not ready to make that kind of investment. Secondly, the the question is, even though we may want to have a, a more um, robust China policy, and I think we do need to have at least a more coherent one, um, the question is, how do we um, coordinate that with our other foreign policy concerns? And uh, since we're not going to be a broad uh, military player in the Western Pacific, and we don't have the same security concerns that Australia does of being isolated. So, and we same t- same time we want to be able to play some sort of more global role. We don't know how to play how it plays out. We have to. The, the fact remains that China is the number one trading partner of every one of the Asia Pacific countries that we want. To, would you otherwise want to play with? And so that um, we have to figure out how we're going to do this. And I just came off a, a webinar this morning in which it was pointed out that uh, most of the ASEAN countries, the other Asian countries, don't want to choose sides and actually, in some sense, lean more on China. So uh, it becomes a problem. It's, and, and a fi- the final thing is, let, let's, do we let's want, take do a we couple want of... to join an Anglosphere alliance? And I wonder how many Canadians would actually, I mean, some Canadians would like it and some Canadians would be appalled by that. Let's take a couple of calls. We've got Jerry in Newcastle. Hi, Jerry. Hi. Um, the one thing that always bothered me on this with the two Michaels is why did our judicial system allow her to live like a queen in a castle in Vancouver while the two Michaels were living worse than the dark? Uh, rule of law. <laughs> Is the short answer. <laughs> well, yeah. the law should be changed because if she's arrested for that, then she should go to jail like anybody else. And if they're being treated that way, then we should have no respect for them. You know, what's good for the gander is good for the goose. Yeah, thanks for that, Jerry. Uh, and, you know, I think I'm not, there's... I'm not, yeah, we, should, we, the, have to, we have to... The, the point of... And I think Stephanie would agree with me on this one. Uh, China is not to stoop to their standards. Okay, uh, let's take a call from Sita. Hi, Sita. Hi, Libby. Hi, everyone. Um, this would never have happened, the two Michaels in jail in China, if Canada did not intervene by the order from the U.S. to stop and hold the Red Princess Ming. Even though we had the best bargain chip to exchange, it wasn't our call. Too bad the Supreme Court did not send her off to U.S. earlier. It was a shock that China agreed to release the two Michaels. It was a, a wonderful and a surprise news on Friday. This was done deal by U.S. Question R, what, are, what else deal Canada had to contribute for or U.S. gain to close this deal? And should Canada use political seas again? I well, hopefully both countries can move forward. Well, okay, Sita, Thank thanks you. for that. You know, if if uh, you know our ambassador to the United States uh, is saying that no, that this that the Chinese just decided on her own, and that really is very very difficult to believe. And the other thing that I think we've heard from our callers, uh, Stephanie Carvin, is that Canadians are really angry about this. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, that the Trudeau government has to be a little tougher on China than they have been. Uh, am I wrong? So, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, interesting. I've done a lot of media and I've gotten a lot of responses and done call-in shows. The level of anger at China is, is palpable. And, uh, you know, I, and I get it, right? Like, I mean, I, the, I think everyone's sympathetic what these two Canadians went through. And I just want to be also very clear here. This issue isn't over. I mean, China is holding a number of Canadians, right? I mean, one of the, the cases that's um, being brought up, and I try to bring up when I do these interviews, is Hussein uh, Salil, a Uyghur, uh, who's a Canadian who's been in detention for, I think, now 15 years and isn't supposed to be released until uh, 2036. 
And, you know, so there's a number of, of other Canadians that are being taken hostage as well. And I hope they're not forgotten in all of this. So, but the thing is, anger is not a good way to make foreign policy. We need, we do need to take a deep breath and do some clear thinking. And, you know, some people are saying we should just drop all trade with China whatsoever. Well, you know, we have entire agricultural sectors that, you know, do depend on China. We do import a lot of stuff from China. So the question is, how, you know, can we engage with our allies? I mean, I, I, um, you know, I, I respect the comments that Mr. Peltil made or uh, Professor Peltil made earlier on um, about, you know, the fact that, you know, all these other Asian countries are, are working with China and don't want to choose sides. I think that's correct. But at the same time, when they mean they don't want to choose sides, it means they're also looking for what their interests are, what their best options are. And, you know, are we trying to figure out ways that we can balance certain I mean, I think the best way I like to think of it is, will the Trudeau government come up with a strategy that does allow us to cooperate on things like um, climate change, but then risk manages things like, you know, the risk of arbitrary detention of other Canadians, or the risk of espionage, the risk of cyber, uh, increasing cyber forward influence campaigns that are coming from China. And, you know, we need to be able to do both of these things, but you can't ignore one sixth of the world's population. It's there. It's important. And yeah, we need a strategy going forward. And my, my sincere hope is that out of all of this, exactly what you just said at the end there, that the Trudeau government does come up with a strategy and then we can critique it for whatever it is. They'll have to have me back on the show. Okay. We'd, we'd be delighted to have you back on the show. Final question. And uh, we're basically out of time. Uh, Dr. Paul Thiel, uh, there's been talk that the Chinese interfered in this election we just had a week ago. And certainly they fund things at universities. And uh, do we have to take another look at that and maybe uh, not let that happen? Well, I mean, if I talk to the universities, which I know something about, um, look, joint research and research collaboration has been going on. And some of it has been a Canadian initiative going down for now for close to 30 or 40 years. Some of that is stuff that we want to do. Um, but I think that, um, as Stephanie has pointed out, our whole relationship is becoming more securitized and more security conscious. And that will be, going forward, we will see many more um, restrictions. I think in many areas we might have a... I guess uh, what you might call a, a traffic light system, areas where uh, cooperation is fine, uh, areas where cooperation should be engaged with in ca- cautiously, and other areas where cooperation is prohibited. Okay, that uh, is, uh, sorry to interrupt, but that is really all the time we have. Thank you so much, Dr. Jeremy Paltiel and Dr. Stephanie Carvin. And thank th- you. Oh, thank you. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.